Today is my day. And we're recording. Here we go. Um, now, Jeff, do we have a plan for today? Yeah, I got a plan. Oh, good. Because you haven't shared it with me yet. <laughs> it's, it's for me is to know our, and you guys. Is it? Yeah, this, this will be a fun podcast. You just spring <laughs> questions on me. It's like an AMA. Ask me anything. It's, it's one of these surprise podcast topics. Actually, that would be that would be kind of fun. I mean, we could take turns. Like one day I could ask you a bunch of random questions and see how you respond on the spot. You know, it's like a job talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Doing okay. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing okay. Maybe we should talk about world affairs a little bit, as we do. I think we should. Uh, this has become a kind of a current events podcast, which was not our original intention. Well, to be fair, though, I mean, when you, we talk about international politics and, and international relations theory, and this is actually one of the things I tell my students. It's like, if you're going to learn all these things, like, what, what is the point? The point is to be able to kind of understand, hopefully, better what's going on in the world and maybe try to explain some of the things that are happening in a way that you weren't able to do before you learned all this stuff. So I, I think it's, it's fine. And I'm happy to embrace our role uh, providing news to our, our seven listeners. So if you're looking right. for, like, three or four-day-old news... This is this is the, the place to come about only international events. Uh, we're here for you. Uh, so since we last spoke, uh, lots of events happening in the Middle East. Um, we talked last time about the terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel and the ensuing bombing by Israel on Gaza. Since then, there was a uh, rapid series of events, continued attacks by the Israeli military on the Gaza Strip. There was a explosion at a hospital in Gaza that drew a lot of international attention um, and some back and forth about who was responsible for this. Was it a misfire by Hamas? Was it an Israeli strike? And this is in the in the run up to friend of the pod, President Biden, flying out to, to Israel to, to be in Israel in, in person. And so there were some announcements made there. President Biden said that he had seen intelligence that this was a Hamas misfire rather than an Israeli airstrike. But a lot of back and forth about that. Biden goes to Israel, announces an agreement with Egypt to allow or agreement that Israel would allow Egypt to send aid into Gaza, which is a, was big news. But we're recording this Thursday. So this happened yesterday. Still no aid getting into to Gaza. But we have a new agreement announced today by the U.N. that there's going to be potentially uh, aid trucks allowed in on the Egypt side of Gaza starting tomorrow. And so they're doing some repairs on, on roads and on the, on the crossing there to make that possible right now. Um, Egypt has kind of been a little hesitant to allow this and they've made kind of they've statements that they would allow 20 trucks in. So we have a bunch of aid trucks kind of massed on the border to help the a really dire humanitarian situation in, in Gaza. At the same time, uh, President Biden was originally intending to visit uh, Arab countries on this trip and talk to Arab leaders, and those meetings were canceled after this explosion at the hospital in Gaza. Um, so those meetings took place over the phone rather than in, in terms of a presidential visit. Thursday tonight, President Biden's making a primetime speech from the Oval Office where he will uh, announce a request for $100 billion in aid for Israel and Ukraine in a combo that seems designed to try to get around some of the political opposition to uh, aid for Ukraine that we see right now in, in the United States among Republicans. 
So a lot of stuff happening here. Marcus, this is a uh, diplomacy-focused podcast in many ways. So maybe we should start by talking about Biden's visit to Israel and uh, what that's all about, what the purpose of this visit is, and, and what being there in person allowed him to accomplish. Yeah, well, that was a good summary of, of a lot of the events that have been happening over the last uh, week or so. I mean, we've talked about presidential visits before uh, on this podcast, and you know the the most recent one that we discussed, I think, was Biden uh, going to Ukraine as a show of of support for uh, Zelensky and Ukraine more generally. Um, and in that context, we talked about it in a couple couple different ways. Like one is the sort of sending of a signal, kind of a costly signal um, in two different senses: costly in the sort of like time that you're taking as a as a busy president to get on a plane and actually go travel someplace is a is an opportunity cost uh that you know i think to a lot of observers would show that you're you're serious you also have these various sort of audience costs of you know making these public uh pledges of support um if the united states for some reason and i don't i don't see biden doing this but in the future if a future u.s president you know sort of decided to lessen the amount of of aid to ukraine for example it'd be harder potentially to do that because the united states through the head of state has kind of made a, a commitment in public um, so there's audience costs that are that are involved there. Um, and then there's also the the sort of symbolism and uh, the the less kind of more difficult to to sort of put tangible um, uh, sort of dollars and cents on or you know sort of identify the specific thing that the visit is doing. But we talked about how you know in in walking the streets of Kiev, for example, you know Biden was doing something very powerful. and so the the sort of drama of that visit, um, I think for many people, and we, we kind of had a little bit of debate about how meaningful this was, but I think for a lot of people, myself included, uh, the symbol of symbolism of it was very important. I think all of that stuff also applies very much to this visit that we just saw uh, happening in, in Israel. It's a very different situation in some ways. Um, traveling to Ukraine, there was a there was a certainly a security threat, but I think in this particular instance, people um, in in the U.S. government, Secret Service, Pentagon. We're very concerned about the security situation of uh, the U.S. president flying to, to Israel. As we've talked about in the podcast, this is a, a very small, like Israel is very small. The Ben-Gurion airport uh, in Tel Aviv, literally like there are missiles and rockets like landing, like almost at the perimeter of the airport on a somewhat routine basis. Israel has lots of different ways to protect the airport. Um, and there are actually some stories written about that uh, when, when news that Biden was going to fly into, into Tel Aviv, like what what they do to kind of protect the airport. But despite all of the sort of technology and, and security that Israel has, you're, you're going into essentially a, a, a country at war, you know? And, and so there were, there was a lot of, of concern about how you're going to make this uh, safe, which is just another, another reason to show that this is a costly uh, trip for, for Biden. I think it's also a little bit different in the sense that um, by going to Ukraine, what Biden was trying to do, I think was show support for, for Zelensky Ukraine. And also to show resolve against against Russia. In this particular instance, I think Biden is definitely showing support for for Israel, but it's also very much, I think, about showing resolve to other countries in the regions, particularly Iran, right? And and you know Hezbollah, I guess, to a certain extent. But it's really about sort of showing um, that we don't want this to to uh, get out of control. Meaning, we don't want to see a major war in the Middle East where some of the Arab countries are drawn in. Um, and there's you know lots of discourse coming out of Iran, a lot from, you know, sort of different directions, but they've, they've been, some of the statements that they've made have been not threatening necessarily, but sort of, you know, uh, saying, be cautious, United States, be cautious, Israel, um, don't do anything that's going to make us react in a, in a negative way. And so clearly, I don't think Iran really likes the idea of the U.S. sending uh, soldiers 
servicemen and women to the Mediterranean, for example, being closer to the to the region. So they're getting nervous about that. So I think largely this trip is about uh, showing publicly United States support for for Israel um, and also very much resolve, you know, and sort of trying to fend off or deter other actors, particularly these these state actors like Iran. I think that the the particularly tricky thing, too, for for Biden um, on this trip is that because he's showing the support for for Israel on the what many believe to be sort of like the the, the days leading into a, a ground invasion into Gaza, it's it's a very sort of th- a thin line that he has to be able to walk because he's saying you know to Israel, look, we support you, not necessarily unconditionally, but that's sort of the idea. Like we support you in, in doing what you need to do. On the other hand, one of the comments that he made was, don't, don't make some of the mistakes that the United States made after our September 11th. So Biden has equated what happened with the Hamas attack to Israel's uh, September 11th, except the fact that Israel is a much smaller country. And so proportionally, this is like many September 11ths, which I think is, is true. Um, from Biden's perspective, the United States made some mistakes. Presumably, he's referring to the Iraq war and, and sort of the overzealous response um, that, as he talked about, comes when you feel this pain and this outrage and this fear. It's kind of a natural human response to want to to do something about it and want to to um, you know rectify the situation in some way. You know, even if if the the means that you have is is fairly limited. So he's trying to show support for Israel, but at the same time saying, I think before this ground invasion starts, you know, do it in a way that uh, is not is not going to make some of the same mistakes that we made previously. So he's showing sort of like this empathy. Uh, which Biden also is very good at, by the way, is just you know sort of interacting with people on a human level and showing empathy for uh, the situation that Netanyahu and, and policymakers in Israel uh, are facing, which is, I would imagine, a very strong desire, urge to to you know get do to do something, whether it's revenge or whether it's you know trying to to you know rectify the situation in some way. That's a very strong impulse that Biden is trying to work against. So he's he's stuck, you know, trying to support Israel on the one hand, but also say please do it in a way that, that doesn't make the same mistakes that, that we made. But Jeff, we've talked many times in this podcast about presidential visits. And my, my sense is, historically on this pod, you've been a little bit uh, uh, pessimistic is the wrong word. Like, y- you don't really think of these visits as being all that important. I think some of the, some of the times you think that these uh, visits, like when there are summits, are kind of like pro forma uh, photo ops where all of the details have kind of been figured out beforehand and the presidents, you know, the head of states are just kind of there to shake hands, take the picture and, and leave. Um, I think you, you sort of downplay sometimes the sort of symbolic element. You, you know, you, you will note that, you know, uh, Biden being in Kiev was was important. And it was interesting. But uh, in terms of like changing things on the ground, I think you're a little skeptical of, of the role of diplomacy. So I would just be curious to get your take on that. I've talked for a lot about this visit. But like, what is your take? Do you think that this is uh, uh, something that Biden was smart to do? Do you think this was a mistake? And do you think, more importantly, this is going to have any kind of effect uh, in the in the situation that Israel's in? I think this was a good idea. I think uh, it was the right thing to do, and I think it has had an effect. Um, and I'd like to talk about all that. I want to start, though, you know, you mentioned this kind of interesting point that in Biden's speech where he makes an analogy to not to 9-11, to... Um, September 11th attacks. And that kind of struck me because we've been we've been talking, well, since the Hamas attacks, there have been a number of different analogies, historical analogies used to 
kind of encapsulate what Israel is going through here. And I thought it's kind of interesting in the context of past discussions we've had on this podcast about reasoning by analogy and thinking about historical analogies. And, and I think this most recently we talked about this in the context of Ukraine and thinking about, you know, is this, is this Munich? Is this the Cuban Missile Crisis? What is the appropriate analogy here? Is it World War I, right? Like wh- whichever one you pick has different kind of policy implications. And I think we've kind of seen that play out in the Israeli context here where I think some of the first analogies that came out from Israeli officials were, this is our Pearl Harbor. And that has a particular resonance in terms of speaking to an American audience. And the idea there is like, we are uh, now going to mobilize our military to uh, overwhelm the um, opponent with our, you know, military force. Um, I think there's a, a kind of sense in which, the the surprise attack of Pearl Harbor leads to kind of awakening this sleeping giant of of American military force, and and you can kind of make a similar analogy for Israel. That's that's an analogy they want to make, right? That they're going to mobilize you know hundreds of thousands of reserves and retaliate against Hamas in a way that that is is quite dramatic. That kind of shifted uh, to another analogy: the 1973 war. In, in Israel, which has a very different kind of resonance for, for the Israeli population. This is seen as a near defeat, right? The 1973 invasion of Israel across two fronts, also known as the Yom Kippur War or the, the Ramadan War. This is a, a conflict that the Israeli population looks back on with a lot of pain, right? Um, that this was a, a moment of severe weakness for the Israeli state. And so that analogy in the Israeli context is maybe not one that the leaders wanted to keep coming back to, right? Because it it like sends a signal of like a weakened weakened Israel. And I mean, many people who are making the analogy would argue that Israel is as this is the weakest point Israel has been at since the 1973 war, um, in terms of like the strength of the of the Israeli state. So that that analogy is fraught in the Israeli context for for a variety of reasons. And then we've kind of shifted to the common analogy of this. This is Israel's September 11th. And that's a tricky one too, right? And I think Biden makes the the excellent point that it's worse than 9-11 for, for Israel, right? And just in terms of uh, the scale, he said, for a nation the size of Israel, it was like 15 9-11s based on the population of Israel. And so it, it's just a very painful experience in, a, in the way that September 11th was painful for the United States in terms of this kind of dramatic loss of, of civilian lives. And so in and, and that way, I think the analogy lines up. But then the, I think the reason that Israeli officials didn't want to use that analogy off the bat is that the U.S. response to 9-11 is not widely seen as like a big success, right? And so I think it was bold of Biden to kind of make this explicit in his speech where he basically said, well, I'll quote him. He said, quote, justice must be done, but I caution this. While you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. And so the reference here, Iraq, probably. So Biden voted in favor of uh, of the invasion of Iraq or later said he regretted that decision. Afghanistan, in retrospect, maybe didn't go as well as we'd hoped. And Biden, of course, is associated with this very painful withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. So the the kind of combination of this terrorist attack followed by a large military response by the United States that didn't go well is maybe something that uh, the Israeli leaders don't want to be, you know, front and center in their messaging. So I thought the way these analogies were used in the last week or so um, has been kind of interesting. 
Marcus, before I talk about uh, Biden's the, the benefit of Biden's trip or why I think it was a good idea, do, do you want to chime in on this analogies point at all? No, I, I I thought something very similar, and you you identified the three that I saw kind of coming out of um, the discourse, you know, around around the attacks and the and the response. And it's it's interesting too, you know, that the that there were so many different analogies that were kind of being made. I mean, typically, I think what happens in these in these kinds of of cases, I mean, there are not really many cases like this in in the particular you know instance of what Israel faces. I mean, this is sort of a a very unique situation, obviously. But oftentimes, you know, sort of the public and policymakers kind of coalesce around one and, and it sort of hardens. And and that becomes the kind of the, the lens through which all incoming information uh, is sort of analyzed and understood. And, and this is there's a large literature in international relations about about analogies and how they can be harmful, precisely because once you've kind of decided that something is something else, uh, this is Munich or this is the Vietnam War or whatever, then everything that happens, you're like, yep, see, like this, just like in Vietnam, like this is what happened or just like in Munich. So so it's it was interesting to me that actually this this showed that maybe there wasn't a great analogy and that people were sort of like looking for, you know, different ways to kind of explain this. The, the September 11th one, I think, is, is you know, interesting in the sense that it gets very much at the, the terrorist attack. But one of the one of the things about September 11th from the United States' perspective is that it was so different and, and, and like unanticipated. It's, it's not the case in Israel where they're used to, to violence, of course. They're used to, to dealing with Hamas and they're used to, to you know, terrorist attacks. Um, I think that for that reason, it was a little, a little bit different. But the other thing that, that, point, that sort of grabbed my attention um, is for somebody who studies you know, psychology and international relations, like the, the fact that Biden is very clear in his speech about like, the role that emotion played. I mean, he's basically saying like, we were, we were engulfed in, in rage. And he's, he's, I think, drawing a causal connection between that rage and the decision making that occurred later. The, so the counterfactual is if the United States had not been experiencing that type of emotional response, maybe we wouldn't have made the mistakes that we made, particularly potentially going into Iraq. So he seems to be suggesting actually that it was, it was an emotional kind of decision, um, or at least emotion played a, a large component in, in what the United States did. And looking back, it, it seems like he's suggesting if we had been a little bit more sort of cool and calm-headed about this, maybe we wouldn't have done the things that, that we did. I rarely see politicians like acknowledging the role of emotion uh, in decision-making calculus. Usually politicians want to be viewed as being like very rational and, and sort of, if we invaded Iraq, it wasn't because we were mad or upset. It was because it, it was in the strategic interest of the United States to do so. We had good reason to do so. And we essentially weighed up the costs and the benefits of taking this action. And we thought the benefits were going to outweigh the costs. And so that's, that's why we did it. So to see him sort of admit that emotion plays a large role in decision-making international politics, I actually, I really liked the fact that he was coming out and making this point, because I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, sort of view it, view that as self-evident, but it's so rarely, it's rarely discussed. And I think it's rarely discussed because a lot of our models of international relations and decision-making tend to view states and, and policymakers as rational actors. So to have somebody come out and say, like, he's not saying we made an irrational decision, but he's saying, you know, emotion became part of our, our calculus. Well, and I think, I think he's, he's able to do that, though, Marcus, because he's not talking about, like, a decision he's making right now. Right. That's true. He's basically saying, like, Israel, my advice to you is not to do this. He said, uh, I'm sure those horrors have, have tapped into some kind of primal feeling in Israel, just like it did in the United States. Shock, pain, rage, an all-consuming rage. 
right? He's not saying I'm going to make my next decision this way, right? That would be right. a, a bold move or to acknowledge like dealing with that um, kind of emotional baggage while making decisions. He's saying this about some other people at a different time. And he's saying you, this other decision maker, don't fall victim to this. Right. That's that's fair. Now, the one the one sort of tricky part about this is that if you are if you're taking his word seriously and you want to let's say let's say you want to sort of take his wisdom and and act upon that. It's not clear to me what that means for Israel. Right. So like if I'm if I'm Netanyahu or any sort of decision maker that's going to have to decide, you know, after the, the Biden visit, what this ground invasion in Gaza looks like. I mean, clearly there are levels at which we can we can like, do this, right? We can be, you know, uh, uh, the number of soldiers that we send in, the sort of artillery that we use, all kinds of decisions like that. But but it's it's sort of like you know he's Biden saying like don't make the mistakes that we made. Well, what is the mistake that Israel could make that it's going to try to avoid now? You know, and so I think that's that's sort of in these in these speeches and things like that. It's like the devil's in the details a little bit, right? Because it's like well, what what is being considered? We don't we don't know necessarily because we don't have access to this intelligence and the security uh, complex. But, you know, what is being considered and what what to Biden would constitute a mistake? Like, what does he not want to see happen? That part's always left a little bit a little bit vague. Back to the, the Biden visit itself. My usual response when there's presidential visits is, could this visit have been a Zoom call? Could the Zoom call have been an email? Could the email right. have been a text message? Right. Uh, but in this case. I think it was an important thing to do, and it did have value. And the reason I think it had value is because this actually was quite costly. And often these meetings are not. Everything's prearranged, and it's just a photo op, and I, I'm going to stand by that in general. But here, I think this was quite a costly signal for the president to send, partly because by going to Israel on the sort of eve of whatever operation is coming next, right? Maybe not the literal eve, but whatever kind of uh, additional ground operation is coming in Gaza, coming to Israel as Israel is bombing Gaza with pretty substantial loss of civilian lives associated with this, coming to Israel in this context strongly associates the United States with the Israeli action. Okay, and and that's good in a in the sense of here is the United States demonstrating to an ally that it is supporting it. But the kind of broader picture that is being shown to the world here is one of U.S. approval for acquiescence to and approval for Israeli action here. And to the extent that that is involving the deaths of of Palestinian civilians, that's a, a really tough picture to be sending to the world. And because it's tough, it's costly. And that makes the signal stronger, right? And so, you know, we've seen kind of in the midst of President Biden's visit there, a lot of outrage in the Arab world about the U.S. kind of approval of Israeli operation and, and that the U.S. appears to be giving Israel free reign, they say, in this military operation that is killing civilians, right? That is putting civilians in harm's way. And, you know, you saw that with the response of Arab leaders canceling meetings uh, with Biden, not wanting to be seen with Biden right now in person, not wanting to have that photo op, preferring to have a phone call. And you've seen it in public statements by Arab leaders, and you've seen it in protests around the Arab world and in Europe and in the United States of people being upset about this signal that's being sent. And part of what you get from the international relations-y crowd, um, the, the foreign policy apparatus, is concern about damage to the United States' role as a fair broker between the Palestinians and Israel. And this is kind of a bigger 
bigger picture concern, a longer term concern, that one of the things the United States has tried to do over the years is at least pay lip service to being a party that can help mediate an end to this conflict. So the U.S. has kind of tried to maintain this this image as a fair broker, as, as an effective mediator between the parties. And what we've been hearing from some in the foreign policy establishment and some in the Arab world is this irreparably damages the United States' ability to serve as that fair broker and as that unbiased mediator. And, and to this, I would like to say the U.S. has never been an unbiased mediator. And throughout the history of U.S. attempting to, to bring peace to the Middle East, it has always been an ally of Israel. And we have a large international relations literature that talks about what makes for an effective mediator in conflict. And a fairly consistent finding in, in recent work is that being a biased mediator is better than being an unbiased fair broker between the two parties. When we think of mediation, Marcus, we often think of like the UN sitting in a room and, you know, just facilitating discussions between two parties and, you know, not really having a view of their own, but kind of shuttling back and forth and making sure everyone's communicating. But uh, there's a literature in, in, in political science that, that tells us that for a variety of reasons, it's better to have a mediator who is more strongly associated with one party or the other that's perceived as being biased in some way. And there are a couple of reasons for this, and, and we, can, we can talk a little bit about it. So one thing that mediators do when they're being effective is they are sharing information, right, about, about the other side. So, um, you know, Israel can't talk directly to the Palestinians very effectively. And so President Clinton is the one who sits down and, like, shuttles information back and forth. You know, we have a, a lot of literature in political science that talks about how lack of information is one thing that leads to conflict. This is the bargaining theory of war that um, some in, in our classes will have heard of. And this theory talks about how uncertainty about the resolve or the capabilities of the other side in a conflict can lead to conflict, right? Because you can't find a zone of agreement that works for both parties. And so one role of a mediator is in resolving this uncertainty, is in providing information from one side to the other. But the problem is that there's there's a cheap talk issue here. So if if you're a mediator that's truly unbiased and your only incentive is to try to get a deal, then you're likely to just say whatever you think is going to get a deal and no one has any reason to take you seriously. So if if I go to Israel and say, well, here's what the Palestinians are really uh, really can do, they have no reason to listen because all I want is to get a deal. But if you're a biased mediator and your incentives are aligned with one of the parties, then they have some reason to take you seriously because that you don't want to say anything to get a deal. You only want to say things that's going to lead to the security of the party that you're biased for. So that's a reason that a country might hear what you're saying and take it seriously. And the other piece of this has to do with influence. And one thing that mediators can sometimes do is say, put a little pressure on one side or the other to make a concession. And that's much easier to do if you have some leverage over the other party. And who has leverage over these parties? They're, they're allies. So we're biased. The United States is biased in the sense that it is an ally with the Israel. But that means that it has some leverage over Israel to try to get it to make small concessions that might help lead to a deal. And I think we can see this in what I think is the big upshot of Biden's visit to Israel, which is an agreement to open a humanitarian corridor to get some aid into Gaza. And, you know, you talked about how I complain that 
these these summits are all pre-cooked, that there's an agreement ready to go when they get there. And I suspect there was an agreement ready to go when Biden got there to allow aid to get into to Gaza that had been kind of pre-arranged by both parties so that there would be something positive to announce a, a, upon his arrival. And, you know, that's a, the kind of thing that that the United States can deliver because it has leverage, right? Because it can say, look, I'll come visit, but I and to, you know, show the world that the United States stands with Israel. But what I need is 20 aid trucks to get some food into Gaza, right? And Israel is more likely to agree to that when it comes from the United States, which has some leverage in those kinds of discussion. Yeah, I mean, you know, oftentimes I disagree with what you say, Jeff, but I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is to, to use an historical example. We've talked about it before. The, the Camp David Accords with, with Jimmy Carter, um, you know, sort of mediating and trying to, to create an agreement were full of these dynamics. You know, Egypt was fully aware that the United States had been a longtime supporter of Israel and was closer to Israel than they were to Egypt. But what they understood is exactly what you're saying because of that closeness and their interests being aligned. Uh, Anwar Sadat realized that the United States, particularly Jimmy Carter, could put pressure on Israel if necessary in order to make a deal uh, more likely. So it's it's a, it's a strange dynamic in the sense that if you go into this, imagine yourself walking into a room where you're you're in a mediation where you know the mediator is closer to the other party. You might feel like this is not fair. This is not good. This person is going to take their perspective. And that's exactly right. But you want them to take their perspective because if their interests are aligned, it actually is better for you in the long run. So it's a little counterintuitive, but I think it's it's true. The only other thing I'll say, too, about the, the alignment of the United States with, with Israel versus maybe like not as strong with the Palestinians, I think the complicating factor here is is that, you know, what, what the United States would, would like to see happen, I think, is for Hamas not to be in control of, of Gaza. Like if, if, if they had their sort of way of... of thinking about like what this ground invasion is going to do and what the preferred outcome is, I think it would be something like getting Hamas out of, out of um, the control of, of Gaza and having, you know, uh, uh, Mahud Abbas, uh, like as controls the West Bank, control Gaza as well. So that becomes very complicated. But at least there you have a group that you uh, have dealt with before, is open to negotiation, is not widely seen as a terrorist organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if that were to happen, I think then you might say, well, okay, certainly the United States is with, with Israel and it always has been, but now you also have a Palestinian um, governance structure that the United States is, is more willing to work with, and that structure might be more willing to work with the United States. So I think, I think part of what's going on here is trying to figure out a way to make that more more likely to happen so that the United States could be a broker in some type of, of broader uh, peace deal. I, I, a lot of people that I've been reading you know, over the last uh, couple of weeks have, have talked about this. They don't see the, the prospect for any type of, of settlement or you know, peace in the Middle East type of deal as long as Hamas uh, is in control of Gaza. Now, I, I don't you – know, maybe, maybe there is a deal on the table that could be made with Hamas. I don't know. But it seems like a lot of, of analysts believe – that if Hamas is no longer in, in control and the Palestinian Authority was in control of both, both the West Bank and Gaza, that you would be, we'd be better off from a negotiation uh, perspective. And I think there's some, there's some logic to that. The last thing I want to say, too, uh, touching on uh, the, the, the mistakes that, that Biden might be referring to, and this has to do with what we were just talking about, with the ground invasion likely coming and in a sort of occupation of, of Gaza, at least in a, for a short period of time, one of the things that the United States, of course, ran into was after you evade Iraq, what happens uh, in the sort of long term? Like, what is the exit strategy? How do you get out of Iraq once you're in? We know 20 years later, you know, there's still U.S. soldiers in Iraq, right? So um, not that many, but there, there are some. And so, like, 
what what happens once Israel goes into Gaza to make it so that they're able to to change a governance structure, let's say, uh, and leave in such a way that they can then get on with the process of of sort of rebuilding and moving towards negotiation? Because I don't think anybody believes that you're going to be able to you know have have real negotiations with the Palestinian people if uh, Israel is occupying Gaza. So I think that's also the concern. It's like once they go in, how do, how are they going to get out? and uh, do that in a, in a timely fashion that will allow some type of peace deal to be reached. The whole question around Israel's military action here is, what is the way in which Israel can effectively unseat Hamas, capture or, or kill the uh, Hamas leaders who are responsible for this terrorist attack, uh, yet not um, just make themselves a bigger target by by being in Gaza and making the country a bigger target. And so, uh, you know, I don't think anyone has the answer to this, but this is the thing that I think the United States policy wants to push on, that they ought to be measured in their response. Very difficult to do that in the aftermath of a, of a horrendous terrorist attack on, on civilians, right? But Ideally, Israel would not be thinking about that all-consuming rage that Biden is talking about. They would be focused on what is the quickest and best way to achieve this military goal. And I think the idea of a prolonged occupation of Gaza is um, tough, as Israel has seen in the past when they have tried to do it. So, so finding the pathway from, you know, here is our military goal, getting rid of Hamas uh, leadership, and how you get to there is is the the really tricky thing. And that's what I think a lot of the discussions uh, are about right now is what is the pathway forward and, and how can the U.S. be of assistance in, in making that happen? So at the same time President Biden was in Israel, Russian President Vladimir Putin was in Beijing meeting with President Xi. And, you know, there's a New York Times article that I, I uh, flagged for you, Marcus, the headline of which is, New global divisions on view as Biden goes to Israel and Putin to China. And you have kind of these competing summits sort of happening. Mm -hmm. What do you think of this story that we the new global divisions are on view here? Well, um, I, I have a lot of different thoughts. I mean, the first one is that I feel like if we went back and looked at the New York Times our coverage of China and international relations over the last uh, 10 years, 15 years, I would imagine that we would find variants of this story uh, sort of over and over and over again, right? And and the reason is, is because of a perception that China is unhappy with the status quo of the United, uh, the status quo of both the United States and the world, but also just sort of like Western institutions, Western liberalism, Western capitalism, all this kind of, you know, post, uh, you know, World War II liberal order that gets developed, and then after the Cold War ends, the United States is sort of like the remaining superpower. There's a largely sort of like a dissatisfaction with that entire system. Um, and we see this pop up from time to time when, when there's articles about the, the Belt and Road Initiative, and people have said, like, this is China's attempt to uh, make inroads in Latin America and Africa and sort of reshape the international system, kind of go to places where it's perceived that the United States is like maybe not paying as much attention to. And so you can kind of develop good relationships with these African countries and maybe get a little, you know, sort of quid pro quo going when it comes to policies that are favorable towards China, like Taiwan, for example. So there's a lot of concern that, uh, or a lot, I should say, there's a lot of stories written about how, you know, China is trying to um, infiltrate the kind of like Western liberal order kind of from the back, back door almost like kind of like do it while people aren't paying attention and, and they're going to amass this kind of power and uh, eventually have enough 
kind of votes, so to speak, or have enough sort of leverage in um, places around the world that they will one day be able to sort of unseat the United States and, and these, you know, more Western European countries from kind of controlling things. And the things that, that often are talked about, like what they're dissatisfied with are, I think, I think like legitimate concerns, you know, the fact that, you know, Western kind of institutions are able to easily sanction uh, other countries, you know, Russia obviously is, is you know, the most recent example of this, but there are, uh, just the other day I was reading or this morning about um, the United States, like not trading AI chips, like with, with China and sort of like, you know, basically having a moratorium on the ability to, to get, you know, these chips to China. So like, if you're for taking China's perspective, you, you kind of look at the world and see potentially uh, a world in which like the, the, the system has been set up by other uh, countries, they set that system up to uh, suit them. They created the rules that are going to work for them. And we're a rising power that now, you know, sort of, depending on how you look at it, economically, military, whatever, at least close to the United States. And so we feel like we should have a more more of a say of how the, the rules are written. So I think these stories get written a lot. I think this is talked about a lot in foreign policy circles and sort of the, the quote unquote rise of China and what that means um, for for international relations. The problem I have with these types of articles is that it never it never actually seems to be the case, at least to me, um, that there is significant progress being made um, by by actors like China and Russia to to rewrite these rules. In other words, I see a lot of discussion about sort of their intention to or their desire to, but less evidence that the things that they're doing are actually attached to uh, rewriting these rules and that those things that they're doing are actually working. So. If you if you're skeptical about China's intentions with respect to the Belt and Road Initiative, that's that's fine, and, and maybe you should be skeptical of their intentions. But like, what on the ground has actually changed as a result of some of these investments? I think locally, you can certainly make the argument that there have been votes of the United Nations, for for example, have changed, and maybe allegiances have changed. You know, sort of in a local context. But these stories aren't about the local context. These stories are about like the international system and like these like broader kind of like new world order uh, type questions that are that are emerging. And I have to say, I'm just kind of skeptical. I was skeptical when they first started coming out, you know, a decade ago or 15 years ago. Um, and I'm still skeptical. And one of the reasons I'm skeptical is uh, what just happened in Israel, we talked about last time. China basically looked at it and said, we're not going to say much. We're not going to do much. We're not going to have um, a, a major response to this. We're going we're gonna to let other countries... Uh, do what they want to do and, and maybe make statements or support or whatever. We're, we're not going to we're not going to be be part of that. In the 2008 financial crisis, as the Western economies were, you know, uh, uh, falling and, and basically this moment of crisis would have been a very good time for China to step up and say, well, we'll bail out whoever wants to be bailed out. But as a result of that or as as part of that, we're going to rewrite some of these uh, rules, these financial rules or trade rules. Um, they didn't do much of that either. So you can look at lots of different examples, like lots of moments in time where it could be that, you know, China could be stepping up to to sort of rewrite the world order. Um, and I don't see a ton of evidence that they're doing that. It doesn't mean that they, the, the New York Times is getting it wrong, that their intention is to do so. But I don't really see a whole lot of rewriting of the of the world order, at least at least yet. Am I, Jeff, am I just mistaken about this or like what what, what do you think? No, I, I don't think you're mistaken. I don't think this is a clear attempt to rewrite the world order, but I'm not sure what you really would need to see to think that China wants to rewrite the world order, right? I mean, a statement about this uh, terrorist attack probably isn't enough. So yeah, Russia and China didn't condemn Hamas in their statements. Um, they called for a, a ceasefire and mediation end of hostilities. So I think they can be, be faulted for being on the wrong side of 
you know, being pro-terrorism um, in this in this context. But you know, they're they're having a summit. What what is that? What does that have to do with rewriting the world order? My issue with this this article is the word new in the headline, right? It says, it says new global divisions on view as Biden goes to Israel and Putin to China. But these are old global divisions on, on view, right? There is nothing new about this at all. And the idea that China would have a summit with Russia um, while the U S comes to its old ally, Israel is not uh yeah, this is not a rewriting of anything. This is, this is par for the course. So um, this doesn't this strikes me as I agree with you. This is like another in these series of news analysis articles that that try to read a broader message about the the international the structure of the international system into what is like the way it has been for um, the, the all the recent past. So I, I don't yeah. I don't I don't find um, any of this particularly. You know, it's it's a there's a narrative for attempting to kind of fit the pieces into the narrative, but the fact that China and Russia are on the wrong side of this is not shocking. That's uh, that's kind of how they roll, right? Exactly, and so I think that's right. Like these these alliances and or or sort of the dividing up of the international system has been <laughs> going on for a very long time with these with these countries. But it's also I think it, it's to me it's more interesting. Like I think these articles kind of reflect like an underlying anxiety. That, you know, the United States has or people in the United States have or people in the sort of West, you know, quote unquote, generally speaking, have about the rise of China. And it's like there's this there's this sort of like anxiety that like there's this, these powerful countries out there, Russia, China, North, you know, North Korea, not exactly powerful, but they, they have nuclear weapons. And so that's that, or could have a nuclear weapon like that's that could be a problem, you know, so like. You know, there's this like sort of anxiety that there are there are uh, what what international relations you know you know talks about as revisionist actors like states that are not comfortable or happy with the world order. And I think if you're the United States and you 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 view yourselves as like sort of championing a liberal democratic uh, you know way towards peace and capitalism is good, a rising you know tide rises all boats. You look at that and say, well, wait a second, we we got it right. Like we think that the liberal order is is just fine. It's good, and these guys want to change it. And I can see how that would be anxiety producing. But the, but the problem is, it's just like a, when it comes to like the actual evidence that, that anything they're doing is like, you know, chipping away at it, I think it becomes sort of superficial. And the idea that like these countries have been trying to do this for a very long time and have sort of made limited inroads, I think should be sort of like reducing the anxiety that people in the United States have and not and not upping it. And the reason I think this matters, and it, it gets back to what we were talking about before with emotion, if you are in a situation where you know, sort of anxious about the idea that China wants to, to reorder things and you find yourself in a, in a situation where there might be some type of confrontation or, you know, something like that, maybe you're in a position then to, to take a little bit more risk to prevent China from, you know, doing the things that you're worried that they, they might, might do. So I do, I do think it kind of matters in the big sense uh, because of a potential confrontation with China would not be, uh, would not be good, certainly. And if, if we are sort of viewing China through this lens of like, they're not happy, they're trying to revise things, or we might be more likely to see some of their moves as more aggressive um, than maybe they intend them to be. And so to me, that's, you know, as a psychology person, that, that misperception is, is kind of important. So I, I would rather look at like the evidence that they're actually, you know, trying to pre-order things and then take it, take it at that level, not the sort of perception that's driven by our anxieties. The other part of this narrative that I think is a little bit off is that this is about Israel and the conflict there. Certainly Biden's visit to Israel is about Israel and the conflict there. But the meeting between um, leaders in Russia and China has nothing at all to do with Israel. 
It's all about Ukraine for Russia and trying to solidify support for Russia's invasion there and maybe, you know, hammer out a deal for additional military support for what Russia is doing. And, you know, Russia doesn't care at all about the Middle East in comparison to its war in Ukraine, which is much more top of mind for for Russian policy right now. So I, I yeah. so, you know, the idea that they're like, th- this is all framed around, oh, you know, with the we have the parties that are on the side of the Palestinians over here, and the parties that are on the side of Israel over here, that is wrong, that's wrong. You know, the, the US is much more on the side of civilians in Gaza than Russia and China are in the context of providing aid and trying to get actively get aid let into the into the Gaza Strip. And, you know, Russia and China are off doing something completely different here. I completely agree. I don't think it's about Israel. And, and you know, the other thing is that I, I always sort of go back to this in the back of my mind. Like, if you're if you're China, like, it's it's not... And I, and I mean, this is going to sound superficial, but I but I mean it in a more deep level. Like, it's not a good look to be deepening. Like, when they, when they came out and said, like, we're deepening our trust with Russia, you know, given the actions of Russia over the last, you know, five or six years, like, I'm not sure why that is, that should be hailed as a, as a good thing. Like, this is, this is the partner that you really want in the international system. To me, it shows a little bit more sort of desperation, if, if anything, than a position of power. So I don't, I don't look, like, that's another reason why I look at these stories and I'm sort of like, there are two countries that feel like they're outsiders. I get that. That part makes sense to me. There's a lot of historical grievances and, and all that kind of stuff. But but the idea that because they are outsiders and they have this like sort of strange bedfellow type situation where they're now partners and they're deepening the trust, to me that doesn't speak to a powerful kind of a situation or alliance. It just it speaks to an awkward, you know, bad look. And if I'm if I'm China, I wouldn't be particularly proud of the deepening trust with with Russia. I had mentioned uh, a second ago the um Biden cutting off the AI chips to China. Did you have any? Because you're a tech guy, you you like ChatGPT. Like, did you have a did you have a, a a response to that? And it kind of connects to some of the things we've been talking about before with, you know, TikTok and iPhone technology and and things like that. I just saw in the news that the Nvidia, the the people that make the video cards in your in your computers, um, Biden administration plans to halt shipments to China of more advanced AI chips designed by NVIDIA and others, part of a raft of measures released on Tuesday that seek to stop Beijing from receiving cutting-edge U.S. technologies to strengthen its military. And they also, by the way, um, don't they don't allow the ships to go to Iran. They don't allow them to go to, to Russia. Uh, and they're now not going to allow them to go to China, which ironically, I think, is probably one of the things that China is complaining about in all this. Right? So, like, you know, it's sort of it's like the, the, the Western world kind of ganging up on us and like keep trying to keep us down. Uh, like that's, that's presumably one of the things that their grievances that Putin and Xi, uh, like are talking about. This would be a good example. I think of if you're, if you're sympathetic to their concerns, this might be a good example. Yeah. So there are a few things here that are kind of interesting. One is the way that the administration is, is structuring this. It's creating like a, a, they're called gray list that basically if you're going to be selling chips to China, Russia for in another country, then you need to kind of work through the administration to get permission. And so it basically means we're kind of expanding the set of countries through which there needs to be specific license for these chips to go, um, which is, you know, the the industry always hates this sort of thing, right, because it creates additional hurdles for them. Um, but uh, right from the Biden administration point of view, there are kind of blocking loopholes that would have allowed these these chips to get to get to China and they're increasing the, the number and types of chips that are covered. I am a uh, export control skeptic when it comes to 
stuff like this, I, I really don't think that in the long run it has much of an impact. And uh, there, people strongly, smart people strongly disagree with me on this and think that these kinds of extrovert controls can can set back, you know, military production and other kinds of other kinds of technological advances that you know we don't want to see China having. Uh, my contention here is that they either don't do much in the long term because the the pace of technology is such that today's chips are going to seem so uh, out of date soon that. Um, there won't be restrictions on sending them. It, it's very hard to maintain like a like decades long export controls on these on this sort of thing. So I, I one one issue is like you know because of the pace of technology does this even have any effect? And another issue is does the lack of access to these chips cause additional innovation dom- domestically for our countries? So the fact that they can't get chips requires them to produce chips, and so what we're kind of doing is spurring development of China's indigenous chip capability, which is not something we really want to be doing. But the analogy I always come back to is uh, supercomputers. Supercomputers mm-hmm. were a thing. They're still a thing, but they're, they were much more of a thing in the 70s and 80s before everyone had a, a PC on their desk, right? And the United States put a lot of effort into restricting supercomputers. The big, the big supercomputer company then was called Cray. Mm-hmm. And they had these massive computers that had so much computing power, Marcus, uh, like a fraction of the computing power of my watch right now. But at the time, so much computing power. So basically the equivalent of like my BlackBerry. Like they, yeah, like yeah. The super- yeah. something like that. I mean, maybe yeah. I'll, for the show notes, I'll like look up the exact figures here. But what seemed like crazy amounts of compute, right? Now we have everywhere, everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the toaster has that. So. Yeah. But but at the time, this was like we wanted to restrict these supercomputers, the idea that by preventing the Soviet Union from getting these supercomputers, we would hinder their ability to model what nuclear weapons look like kind of inside the fireball, mm-hmm. right? And thus prevent them from making advancements to their nuclear weapons design. And this was like a big deal. There were lots of meetings. Lots of meetings were held. And lots, sure. of, uh, lots of things were restricted. Um, but the idea of like restricting this my watch right like it's computing the size of the watch from from making it to to the Soviet Union is a little ridiculous in, in retrospect and even at the time it was playing around the margins right like like what is the net effect of preventing china from getting this particular nvidia chip ne- negligible right like like every individual thing maybe in the whole there's some effect but but for the most part, you're not affecting China's overall military power. You're not affecting China's overall ability to develop new commercial technologies. You maybe are making it a little slower, right? Or a little less competitive on the world market. Or maybe the smart bomb isn't quite as smart, right? But it's still pretty smart. And does that really make a, make a big difference? And I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that it does. But this is maybe a, we could have a more of this conversation as we go, as we continue to kind of tighten the tighten the net when it comes to uh, chips in China. Yeah. And also, I mean, I just sort of like, it always seems to me like the, the you're doing, you're sort of like shutting the barn door, like more or less, like once the, the cows or the horses or whatever have gotten out, because it's, it's a company's chips, like the technology, presumably in industry is, is not just housed in that like one company, maybe in some instances it, it truly is, but like the, the, the technology is kind of like out there in, in the particular like field of the industry and trying to like keep control of that. It seems to me to be kind of, uh, kind of complicated. I think it's, it's a little bit different when, for, you know, computers were first on the scene and it was like, this like, you know, we don't know anything about them. Like, is it scary? And like, oh my God, the Soviets are going to get these things and like, you know, have, have a, 
figure out like a way to make better ones and things like that. I think there right. it's, a, it's slightly different, but you know, it, the parallel is clear, right? It's sort of like at the end of the day, you're trying to to put a, a cap on you know something that's really difficult to put a, a cap on. It seems to me, and maybe maybe a better way of of framing this is is it's the difference between like a, a technology that enables a new capability and a technology that makes an existing capability more efficient, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think what we're doing is harming the efficiency of China's stuff going forward, which is fine, right? Like, I'm not saying that's a, a bad goal to have, but I think we sometimes get confused into thinking what we're doing is hindering an enabling capability, a capability that will allow China to do something new that they couldn't have otherwise done. And that's where I think it's hard to make the case that these kinds of export controls are effective. I should write that paper. That's a good, that sounds good. I have a, I have like a draft of a thing about the, um, about the supercomputers from the eighties. Cause I, I used to get invited. They don't invite me anymore, but I used to get invited to these like meetings where people are talking about what does this technology do for nuclear proliferation? And, uh, there was like a three is 3d printing nanotechnology, <laughs> Uh, AI, like, like, how does this enable uh, nuclear proliferation? And you know, all these meetings, and I'm, I was always the guys like raising my hand, like, come on, like, yeah, like, no, so you're, totally you're gonna make it like, yeah. like twenty cents cheaper to make this widget, and that's right. like, that, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so they, <laughs> they, they stopped inviting me to the thing. Yeah, you're, I, you're a buzzkill. I have like, like, because you know, this is the way to get funding from people too. I, I think there's like a lot of like chasing the money. Because well, yeah, you yeah. want to say you're 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 not working on this old technology, nuclear weapons. You're working on this new technology, nanotechnology. I'll, I'll use one. Apologies <laughs> to those who know what I'm talking about. Like the nanotechnology guys, like I'm going to get a grant for the nanotechnology because I'm talking about nanotechnology and nuclear weapons. But really, like you know, it's just playing around the margin. I love when we start to talk about topics that you like know something about and are very passionate about. It's rare, but then you like you do deep dives into these things, and it's it is rare that we talk about something I know something about. Well, the yeah. the, the Venn diagram of like <laughs> things Jeff knows about uh, and also cares about, like you you know a lot of things, but you don't really care about many things. You know what I'm saying? Like That's the right. overlap is it's there's not much there. So every once in a while we hit on something, and it's great. All right, maybe we should <laughs> we should end things there, Marcus. I think that's a nice place to stop. Yeah, yeah. thanks for a wide-ranging discussion today. That was great. Folks, if you'd like to uh, send us a note, we're at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Um, you can let us know what you'd like us to talk about, if you have any comments or questions, or just tell Marcus where he was wrong about something. I would like that. Um, Marcus, thanks so much for joining me. Great to see you. See you next time. See you next week. Here at William & Mary, we just had a fall break. And so fall break is like, you know, a couple of days uh, where the students have off. There's, there's no teaching. Um, and one, one of the things that I did over the weekend, uh, of the fall break weekend, is I ran a, a road race at, in a local uh, park. Um, and it's called Freedom Park for people that are from Williamsburg. Nice, nice little lots of trails and stuff like that. They had a 50K uh, race, which is a 31-mile race. And I showed up to this event, like not really knowing, like I didn't really have a plan. I kind of did it on a whim and I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll just see how things go and kind of, kind of, you know, run how based on feel basically. And at the beginning of the race, when you sort of, I mean, you run a lot of road races yourself, Jeff, so I know you know all this, but you know, at the start, you know, you got to line up at the starting line, right? And typically you have some like kind of go-getters who are like right up front because they're, they're planning on winning the race and they're going to try to try to lead. Everybody was kind of like hanging back. Now, one reason that's probably the case is 50K is a long way to go, so you're not going to like really sprint out of the gate, uh, so to speak. 
But I was like, well, you know what? If no one else is going to like get up to the front of the line here uh, at the starting line, I'm going to do it. And so I walked up to the start line, and when the gun went off, it wasn't actually a gun. It was like a whistle. But when the whistle blew, I just started running. And within like 10 minutes, I was like all by myself. I'm like running, and I'm like looking around, and, I'm, and I'm, I realize like I'm in first place, uh, like a half mile into like a 31-mile race. And so I was like, that's kind of fun. That's cool, you know? Not expecting it to last very long. And it was a loop course, so you run a 10-mile loop three times. I got through the first loop, and I looked behind me and, like, couldn't see anybody. And I was in first place. And then I got some water and Gatorade and stuff and ran the second loop, uh, 20 miles. And I looked around, and I was like, no one, no one, <laughs> no one close to me. Do you start to wonder the... if, you're, if you, like, made a wrong turn somewhere? <laughs> well, I start to wonder, like, yeah, did I make a wrong turn? Or am I hallucinating? And I'm actually, like, so, f- I'm, like, losing so badly that, like, there's nobody behind <laughs> me, but I also can't see the people in front of me. Uh, and then I, I'm on the third loop, and I'm like, I think I might be, like, winning this? And so I, like, ran harder, and sure enough, I get to the finish line, and I won. And I like, you know, put hey. my hands up and I was like, yeah, I won 50 carries. Now, you know, the thing about it is, I, I, thank you. It's a, it was a very small race. So there were only like 30 people. No, actually, I think it was, I think like probably like 40 people started. But then like, you know, in a race like this, a lot of people don't finish because it's a long way to go. So it was a very small race. It's not like the New York City Marathon or anything like that. And I'm not sure, I'm not telling you this to like, to like toot my own horn, although clearly I'm doing a little bit of that. But it's, but it's just sort of like one of these unexpected things where you show up thinking you're just going to like run. <laughs> like a race and you end up winning i don't know what the moral of the story is i don't know what the lesson is here i guess i guess the lesson is show up you know they say what's the, it's a saying like you know half of half of effort is like half of winning is showing up or or the first the, the the first steps of losing is trying or what i don't even know what it is but like you just show up like you know show up and things happen sometimes so what are you going to do with the prize money well unfortunately there was none uh which is kind of a bummer it's like in the office episode you know, where they do that 5K for, like, rabies awareness. And one of the guys, they, he's like, well, you know, what's the, what's the first place prize money? And she's like, this, there is no prize money. This is for charity. And he's like, is any of this real? <laughs> <laughs> I, not that I was expecting, like, monetary. Like a, tro- like, like a plastic uh, trophy? Nothing? I, I, I think they're going to mail us something. All right. like, like a certificate? This, was not, this, was a, this wasn't like, there, was, there, was, there wasn't like a podium... <laughs> You know, there wasn't like a band playing and and like a even my and, kids get a medal for their soccer team. You know, and they I don't think, have to win think, to get the medal. I so. think I deserve. I think I deserve yeah. a medal, like or something, some sort of physical like symbol of coming in first in this fifty k race. 